This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I trust that many of you by now had a chance to read uh, the article I sent around about the life of uh, Ryan Neal, who spent uh, six years apprenticing himself to a bonsai master in Japan. And if his story sounds extreme or sometimes even bizarre, uh, I think just the way that we uh, talked about the legendary life of uh, Shakyamuni last week, it's very uh, instructive to read these stories of student-teacher relationships and what counts as this kind of training and where we think it has similarities to what we do, and where we think it goes off the rails. Because I think uh, one important way of understanding any kind of practice is to understand not just how it works, but how it can go badly uh, and how to be uh, intelligent about what's the part that's valuable and how to distinguish it from uh, traditional ways that it can uh, go off the rails. The article doesn't give us a real psychological insight into why Neil uh, went to study bonsai in Japan. Uh, we're told that as a high school student, he already was a kind of obsessive athlete, getting up at 5.30 in the morning to try to shoot 1,200 basketball jump shots before he went off to the gym to do his weight training before he went off to class. So uh, he was an unusual character to begin with and only gave up that athletic pursuit when he injured himself. We don't really hear anything about his family or his father uh, or where that kind of drivenness or perfectionism might have come from. The first mention of uh, Bonsai comes uh, from him watching the movie Karate Kid. And there you get the suggestion that the master in that movie represents a kind a kindly idealizable 
father figure uh, for a feckless youth. Uh, and maybe there's something like that uh, in his story, although we're not told much about that. We're simply told that he sort of gets this sort of fixed idea in his head that that's the thing he wants to do. And so he organizes his college years around learning Japanese and horticulture and all these things in preparation for a possible apprenticeship. And you get the kind of traditional you know, story where he writes 20 letters to the master, all of which are ignored until one day he's finally told, okay, you can come in, right? And then he's put through the kind of uh, ruling apprenticeship that we're told his master uh, in turn had gone through. It's kind of uh, working from 8 a.m. to 11 at night, never a day off, no personal life. Uh, the beginning years totally filled with menial tasks. Uh, picking up the dirty rags that the master uses to wipe his hands, constantly washing them and making sure there's always a clean one available, right? That sort of thing. And never is there an encouraging word. There's only a correction of mistake, mistakes, physical harshness, uh, whether from the master or the senior uh, apprentices. And it's this kind of submission to discipline, submission to a grueling work schedule, a complete um, abdication of any kind of outside personal life or interests that are all part of the training. And the training is obviously meant not just to teach him how to uh, cultivate bonsai, but to make him into a certain kind of person. But after a couple years of what seems like extremely masochistic uh, submission to this teacher in this routine, he describes a moment uh, where he notices the name of the one of the power tools uh, he's been using that it translates as the future. And all of a sudden something happens where uh, instead of feeling he's just been submitting to the teacher into this routine, this word all of a sudden embodies a kind of ideal that he suddenly feels is his own that the perfectionism becomes an abstraction that he himself wants to surrender to. And it's a shift, uh, we can say, from submission to surrender. Now that's using the language uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, from uh, Manuel Gentz, uh, classic paper on masochism, submission, and surrender. 
And for Ghent, we have a fundamental longing, a spiritual longing to surrender, to go beyond our self-centeredness, to surrender to something in some sense higher. And he suggested that submission and masochism were perversions of the longing to surrender, that we grope for a way to go beyond ourselves, and that we submit to others uh, as a kind of step along that path. Or he also used examples of uh, sexualized masochism as another kind of longing to submit and ultimately surrender, right? I think uh, when we talked about the Buddha uh, last week, undergoing years of uh, extreme ascetic trials, of trying to master body and mind, to go beyond body and mind, uh, that picture is very much in line with Ghent's picture of the longing for surrender. Uh, asceticism in the service of this ideal of transcendence. You don't get a, a sense of it um, submitting to any particular person. Uh, but there is this desire to break through, break through this, the self to something higher. Now, I think uh, the fact is that most of the time when we encounter submission and masochism clinically, I don't think it has much to do with a longing to surrender. Uh, Rather, uh, it has much more to do with what Branshaft and Stalero called pathological accommodation, the attempt to hold on to at all cost to a needed relationship. And Jessica Benjamin in Bonds of Love Uh, wrote about masochism when she analyzed um, the French novel, The Story of O. And there, the masochism uh, is understood as a longing for uh, recognition. Again, a kind of longing for the other, uh, a connection to the other. And I don't think that that, uh, as uh, Ghent would say, was some perversion of surrender. I think it's a a warping of a a long, longed-for relationship. Very often this kind of willingness to do anything to prove yourself to the uh, the idealized uh, figure on whom you feel completely dependent uh, for connection or recognition. 
And it's, um, as you may know, um, Manny Ghent was Jessica's analyst. And they, uh, so it's interesting that they took this uh, divergent uh, view of the nature of masochism. In any case, Neil may have had this moment of genuine surrender that helped reorganize his practice. But after six years, it seems like his visa ran out and he had to go back to America and was basically dismissed from his apprenticeship. Uh, and he came back here uh, and he was uh, this very strange uh, byproduct of this training. Uh, on one hand, he had achieved true mastery of this art uh, and was able to establish his own business and have students of his own. But in another way, his life was twisted. He had had no relationships for years, uh, in the formative years after uh, college, and he came back. He seemed to have quickly gotten married, had a son, but that relationship quickly fell apart. Uh, and I think that the extended metaphor of the article uh, which I don't know is ever explicitly stated, is that he himself is the bonsai. See, that uh, he was put through a kind of training that twisted him into these very exotic shapes. It made him a master, but it also stunted him. He lived, he lived his life in this very, like this very circumscribed, narrow world, this tiny little pot that uh, allowed him to develop in this, in some way, beautiful, exotic uh, shape, but in other ways, uh, very damaged. Some of you may know the poem by uh, William Butler uh, Yeats, The Choice, in which he says, um, we must choose between the perfection of the life or the work, and that we can't have both. Well, I think that part of what we try to do in lay practice is find more of a balance or a dialectic between the life and the work and not so radically choose. I was trying to think of analogies to his kind of training and certainly what we've done any kind, anybody who's done any kind of monastic training or training in the martial arts in this country with Asian masters has had a taste of what he went through. And you come out of that with this strange combination of uh, 
gratitude for the training, but wondering, was it worth it? I was trying to think if there are any Western uh, analogs to this kind of training. Uh, and the only thing I could uh, come up with was the training that uh, people go through uh, for the ballet or to become classical musicians. Uh, and if anything, that's sort of even more bizarre because we, uh, it, it's done to small children, right? Uh, Neil, at least, was out of college when he uh, went through all of this. And I'd be curious uh, to hear uh, from Yael if she uh, felt any identification with this kind of uh, training and how you look back on that uh, later in life. Uh, a big part of what I've done, I think, over the years, both as a therapist and uh, the Zen teacher, is sometimes helped people be not such good Buddhists so that I can transplant them from a smaller pot into a somewhat uh, bigger and healthier uh, garden. And maybe that uh, makes them look less like the perfect Zen student, but allows them to have a little more of a, uh, a life outside uh, the confines of, uh, of Zen practice. In any case, I think it's a, uh, an important question. Uh, how much are we shaped by this practice? How much are we shaped by a relationship with a teacher? Where is it go over into masochistic submission? How do we watch out for that? How do we judge? I think we each have to come up with our own answers. <laughs>